In the spring of 2019, before the world had ever heard of COVID, I interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci. At the time, I was working at the Washington Post and was making a three-part video series on the history and science of vaccines. Dr. Fauci, who's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, was famous then as far as scientists go, though certainly not the household name he is now. We talked for an hour, and he spoke passionately about vaccines. At one point in the interview, I asked Dr. Fauci what keeps him up at night. That's when he described a novel, easily spread, and highly dangerous respiratory illness, something like a pandemic flu or SARS. At the time, I found this answer interesting, but a bit off topic for our conversation. In fact, it didn't even make it into the final cut of the video. We were so innocent back in the spring of 2019. Earlier this week, I got the chance to talk to Fauci about the thing he unwittingly predicted over a year ago. We talked about how the U.S. is doing compared to other countries, how American partisanship has affected our recovery efforts, and how a COVID vaccine might influence the future of vaccine acceptance in our country. As you'll hear, we covered a lot of ground in the 30 minutes we had to talk. This time, I spoke to him over a video call from my small New York City apartment. He sat in front of a golden National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases sign. I sat in front of a painting my grandpa once did of a drunken cow. So if you'd like to watch this conversation instead of listen, head over to 538's YouTube channel. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. All right, Dr. Fauci, let's get started. I know you're okay. on a tight schedule. No problem. Um, so early on in the pandemic, you know, New York got hit really hard. And at the time, we didn't know much about the virus, but now we're seeing new spikes in places like Florida and Arizona. So six months in, what have we learned about treating patients that might keep, you know, say Miami from being the next New York City? Well, there are a couple of things. You mentioned, what do we know about treating patients? And I think it's important to separate what we know about treating a patient once you identify a patient as infected versus why are we having blips and surges in Florida, in California, in Texas, and Arizona. In answer to your first question, we, do, we are much better now at treating patients. As you know, being a New Yorker, New York got hit really, really badly, worse than virtually any place in the world a couple of months ago. They had a lot of deaths, a lot of infections. They ultimately got the infection rate down and the deaths dramatically down. During that period of time, you just get better in treating patients. You get more experience, you know about what to do, what not to do. And in addition, we have a couple of drugs now, remdesivir and dexamethasone, that are very helpful in people with advanced disease, particularly with dexamethasone, for people on ventilators and with remdesivir with people who are hospitalized and have lung disease. So that looks at the treatment. Now, what is going on with the resurgences of infection? And what I think is going on there, in fact, I have to say, I know what's going on there because it's pretty obvious, is that in some of the states, the governors or the mayors essentially jumped over the guidelines and the checkpoints and opened up a little bit too soon. And they were not prepared to deal 
with the resurgences that they saw. In other states, the governors and the mayors actually abided by the guidelines and the restrictions. But the people in the state, particularly the young people, threw caution to the wind. And you see the films of people very densely congregated at bars and in areas where they're getting together, not looking at social distancing, not wearing masks. So I think what we're seeing right now are the results of that in those states, those four states that are accounting for about 50% of all the new infections that we're seeing in the United States. Are you saying that it's a mix of politicians not following guidelines and and people not following uh, orders? Or what, yeah. what do you oh, think? It is both. I mean, it, it's not a unidimensional thing. It's complicated. There are some governors and, 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 and mayors that did it perfectly correctly. They stayed exactly. They wanted to open up. So they went through the guidelines of opening up their state. But what happened is that many of the citizenry said, you know, well, I'm either going to be locked down or I'm going to let it all rip. And, and you could see from just looking documented on TV and in the papers of still photos of people at bars and at congregations, which are a perfect setup, particularly if you don't have a mask. And then there are some times when despite the uh, guidelines and the recommendations to open up carefully and prudently, some states skipped over those and just opened up too quickly. Do you think that Florida and Arizona opened up too quickly? You know, I, I think in some respects, in some cases, they did, not always. But I think that that certainly is contributing to that. Certainly Florida, I know, you know, I think jumped over a couple of checkpoints. I interviewed you back in the spring of 2019. And at the time, this was way before COVID was even on anyone's radar. At the time, I asked you what keeps you up at night. And you said that the thing that you're most concerned about as an infectious disease physician and a person in public health is the emergence of a new virus that the body has no background to and that's highly transmissible and has a high degree of morbidity and mortality. And you, you basically described something you, I think, said like a pandemic flu or SARS, right. um, which is quite prescient of you. Um, but, you know, you and, and other public health officials out there knew that something like this pandemic was a possibility. So if you could go back to the beginning of this pandemic, what would you do differently? And what would you encourage the United States to do differently? Well, you know, it's always easy to go back in the retrospectoscope and say, yeah, I, I could have done things differently, of course. Um, now you know that when you shut down, you dramatically diminish the spread. Therefore, the logical conclusion is, should you have shut down earlier? Well, if I knew at the time that shutting down would have such a dramatic effect on controlling the spread, obviously we would have shut down earlier. If we knew that the trouble was coming from China, even though we shut down travel from China relatively early, still perhaps we could have done it even sooner. I mean, those are just things that you always try to outguess yourself, that when something worked, there was always the question, should you have done it earlier? You know, and if something doesn't work, should you not have done that? I mean, that's, that's just the way retrospective analysis is. So, yeah, I'm sure we could have done better. We, we would be presumptuous to say that we did everything perfectly. 
For a few months, masks were quite a partisan issue, um, though in the past few weeks, politicians on both sides have advocated for, for their use. Do you think America's hyper-partisan environment has made it more difficult to suppress the virus? You know, I think you'd have to admit that that's the case. Um, we live, I mean, you have to be having blindfolds on and covering your ears to think that we don't live in a very divisive society now from a political standpoint. I mean, it's just unfortunate, but it is what it is. And you know from experience historically that when you don't have unanimity in an approach to something, you're not as effective in how you handle it. So I think you'd have to make the assumption that if there wasn't such divisiveness, that we would have a more coordinated approach. We're at this moment where it's it's still the summer, but we're looking ahead to the fall and schools are, you know, getting set to reopen in September. But many parents and students still don't really know how that's going to work. Um, do you think that we have enough information about the virus to make ed educated decisions about schools right now? You know, I think uh, that it's less that we don't have enough information about the virus than we don't know what the virus is going to do in any given community as we get towards the end of August and the beginning of September. So I, I would like to state a principle so that people would understand it, that obviously we're gonna be influenced by the dynamics of an outbreak in a particular region. But in general, we should try our best with ample consideration for the safety of the students and their parents. We should try if we possibly can to keep the schools open. And the reason is there are secondary uh, spin-off consequences of closing schools that lead to unintended consequences of a ripple effect on what the parents do with regard to work, about getting back to work, and what you do about daycare centers, and what you do about the lunches for children who rely on school to get maybe at least one good meal a day. So having said that, that doesn't mean if you have a big outbreak that you keep the schools open, you might have to reconsider. But the one thing that we do know that we live in a country that's very large and very heterogeneous. And there are gonna be some counties and some states that have so little viral activity that you would have no trouble completely keeping the schools open with doing nothing different than you would do under normal circumstances. Whereas in other places, the activity of the virus may be such that you might wanna modify scheduling, things that many principals and others are doing you know, morning, afternoon, uh, half the class at one time, half the class at the other. You know, sometimes that's workable, sometimes that's not. But at least it needs to be seriously considered. Right. I mean, do you think that there are different decisions that need to be made for kids of different ages? Oh, yes. I mean, obviously mask wearing. Very clearly, if you can get away when you have viral activity and you make a decision to keep the school open, for the children who are old enough to be able to wear a mask, you're gonna want them to wear a mask. There are some children at certain ages that, you know, I've had children at those ages, I know how difficult it would be to get them to keep a mask on. They probably would be fiddling it enough that the touching of their hands to their face is probably more detrimental than not having a mask on at all. 
how do you think the U.S. is doing right now? Like just in a, if you're looking across the world, what are your feelings about how we're doing right now? Well, let me say there are parts of the United States, like where you live right now, <laughs> that are doing really well, that you've been through something really bad and you have things under control and you have a, a governor and mayor in the city who understand what it means to go by the guidelines for the gateway, phase one, phase two, phase three. So you're doing well. Other cities are doing well. But as a country, when you compare us to other countries, I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. Because if you look at the curves of what happened in the European Union, infections went up, they came all the way down to baseline, and then they kind of stayed there, even though as they try to open, there were more cases. In the United States, as a country, with the exceptions of those areas that did well, we came up, we came down, but we plateaued at 20,000 for weeks and weeks and weeks. And now, the last couple of weeks, we've gone back as high as 50,000 new cases per day. And now, like yesterday, it was 43,000. But 43 and 50 is twice what your baseline is. So I think you have to say, we've got to do better. I don't think we should be congratulating ourselves about how well we're doing. We've got to do better. Even though some parts of the country are indeed doing very well. The EU and some other European countries are opening their borders, but they're still banning travel from the United States. Do you think that's a justified decision on their part? You know, and I wouldn't use the word justified. I would say it's understandable <laughs> because, you know, when we saw that there were many cases in Europe and in China, we banned travel from the European Union, from the UK to us. So right now they have their infection rate very low, much lower than we do. So they're looking at us and they're saying the same thing that we said to them. I wish that that were not the case. I wouldn't be recommending that. I think we need to get back to some sort of normality. Just the same as they're saying to us, why are you still banning travel from Europe? Which we are. I mean, so I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm all for America and, and, and I back what we do, but if I were a European, and I'd be looking at us. I'd say, why are you still banning Europeans from coming to the United States? Do you think that without a vaccine, we're going to get back to any sort of, uh, you know, ability to, to go travel the way that we once did? You know, I think we may be able to do that, but there's still, as long as there's a dynamics of an active outbreak, it's going to be very difficult to get back to a true normal. If you superimpose upon very good public health measures and superimpose a vaccine on that, even if the vaccine is not 100% protected, let's say it's 70, 75% protected. If you can do that combined with public health measures, I think we can get pretty close to some form of normality. I mean, without a vaccine, how hopeful are you that we'll get this pandemic under control in the U.S.? I think we can get it under control, but keeping it under control is going to be the real problem. Because this virus is not like other viruses that we experience. 
like the original SARS from 2002. That was a coronavirus. It caused an outbreak, a pandemic. There were 8,000 cases and 800 deaths. So in magnitude alone, you see how different it is from what we're doing now. But it was not really very well and efficiently transmissible. Whereas this virus, to our dismay, is spectacularly efficient in transmitting from person to person. So that makes me skeptical whether we would get permanent, uh, sustained control of this without having a vaccine. So on the subject of vaccines, how hopeful are you that we'll actually have a working vaccine within the 12 to 18 month time frame that you and other public health officials quoted at the beginning of this pandemic? Well, I'll give a caveat and then I'll give you my opinion. <laughs> the caveat is that whenever you're dealing with a vaccine, there's never a guarantee that if or when you're gonna get a safe and effective vaccine because there are so many bumps in the road and potholes when you're trying to develop a vaccine. But having said that, looking at the preliminary information that we have in the animal models, as well as the original phase one study that looked at safety and the beginnings of the ability to induce a good response, I have to say, Anna, that I, I'm cautiously optimistic that with a number of candidates that are being pursued and will relatively soon go into a phase three trial to determine efficacy, I think we have a pretty good chance as we end this calendar year and get into 2021, that we'll have a safe and effective vaccine or more than one that will able to be distributed. So there are a number of players that are at different stages of development. And I feel pretty confident that, you know, sooner or later at the end of a year, as we get into 2021, that we're going to have one or more candidates that look good. Just because a vaccine is approved um, doesn't mean that the next day everyone is going to be able to go out and get it all at once. Um, so, you know, this might be hard to estimate, but what percentage of the country do you think will be able to get the vaccine in, say, like the first three months after it's approved? So let me tell you what the company is promising because we can help develop, but they manufacture it. So we're hearing from more than one company that they are gonna already this summer start manufacturing doses so that when proof or not of safety and efficacy occurs, they will be able to immediately start distributing substantial numbers of doses, which means that some companies are saying as we get into the first quarter or first half of 2021, that they'll have hundreds of millions of doses and within a year might even have a billion doses. So I would think that as we go into 2021, and I'm telling you what the companies are telling us because I don't own the companies and I don't have anything to do with them except we're collaborating with them in the developing a vaccine. I would imagine that as we get to the beginning of 2021, that there will be tens of millions of doses to distribute. And likely as we get into the first half of 2021, there likely will be hundreds of millions of doses. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty fast. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is that, you know, with any vaccine, 
even after it goes through extensive clinical trials, there is always some risk of adverse effects. Um, and even if the, the, the side effects with the COVID vaccine, whatever it may be, are extremely small, it's going to get more media attention than probably any other vaccine in history. Um, at the same time, we also have a growing anti-vaccine movement in this country and around the world. So I'm wondering whether you and other, pu other public health officials are concerned about kind of the long-term impact of this moment on vaccine acceptance. That's a great question, Anna, because what it really tells us is that we got to get it right. We really do, because if we don't, it might have a real negative impact in the long range, in the long term, on how people approach and respond to the need for vaccination, which is the reason why we're taking so seriously that even though we're doing this quickly, we're not compromising the safety uh, and nor are we compromising the scientific integrity. So as we go into the phase three trials, not only are we gonna be looking at efficacy, but we're gonna be really paying attention is there anything there that we're seeing that's even suggestive of a negative impact? That's gonna be really very important. So that's a really important question you asked. Do you have any guesses about how many people may um, actually end up opting not to get the vaccine? You know, I'm hearing reports, I don't know what the accuracy of the reports are, but they're saying that as many as 25% of the people might not want to have the vaccine, even if we say that and prove that it's safe and effective, which means that we have a task cut out for us. We've got to do what's called community engagement. We did that with treatments and prevention for HIV by engaging the community on the ground, boots on the ground, community engagement. We realize now that we have to do that with a COVID vaccine. And we're already starting the process of planning how we are going to do that. So right now that's the ball is in our court. We really have to extend ourselves and engage the community. You know, you just mentioned our HIV response, which was, you know, the the outbreak that where you first kind of emerged in the public sphere in America. Um, do you, do you see any similarities between how the United States addressed that very different type of pandemic um, and what we're seeing now? You know, there are probably more differences than similarities, but there are some similarities. You know, it was an outbreak that when we first saw it, it was confined, this is HIV, was confined to what appeared to be a very restricted demographic group, the gay population in this country, and then later injection drug users, and then we knew by transfusions and mother to child and hemophiliacs. But in the beginning, it was felt to be a very restricted disease. I actually wrote a paper about that in 1981, <laughs> about how we really better be careful because this is not gonna be a restricted disease. Unfortunately, not many people read that paper or listened to what I was saying, and it insidiously snuck up on it. We really underestimated what was gonna happen with HIV. We being a global community, not necessarily we being you and I, but including 
you and I. Well, not you, you were too young at the time. But we underestimated it. The same sort of thing happened now, except it wasn't insidious. It didn't creep up on us. It exploded on us. And it took us a while to realize that as it was happening around us, that we were dealing with a really, really serious situation. And it was quick that we realized that it was serious. With HIV, it kind of snuck up on us over a period of months to years. Whereas what we're seeing now with COVID, it's like a weeks to months that we realized that we were in trouble. I mean, then why don't you think we sort of did the, what you were calling like boots on the ground uh, response in the first couple, couple weeks once we realized how serious it was? Yeah, because the boots on the ground that I mentioned was to get people to appreciate that they needed to get vaccinated. We didn't have any vaccine. All we knew, a lot of people were getting infected. So by, by the time we realized that this was such an efficient spreader from person to person, that's when you kept on hearing about social distancing, lockdown, wear masks. So that happened pretty quickly, I think. So what's, what is your best advice right now for how we get the country out of this mess? Yeah, my best advice, and I've said it so many times, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to say it again, Anna, is that um, you really got to look and abide by the guidelines. When we put the guidelines together, and I played a role together with Debbie Burks and others in getting the guidelines together, that we abide by the gateway restriction, 14 days of diminution, then go to phase one. If you fulfill the criteria for phase one, go to phase two. If you fulfill, go to phase three. So the, you've got to examine where you live, not you, the, the citizenry, but the citizenry and the leaders, the governors, the mayors. Examine where you are and don't jump over any uh, of the, of the uh, checkpoints. Do it in a measured, prudent way. That's what the leadership could do. The citizenship of the, of the country. Abide by the guidelines of where you live. And as an individual, no matter where you are, given what's going on in our country, physical distancing, six feet away, wear a mask, wash your hands, avoid crowds. Those are the things that everybody should be doing. So right now, we're still in the middle of it, as you know, it's become well known now that people ask me, are you worried about the second wave? And I'll say it to you, Anna, as I said it many times, we're right smack in the middle of the first wave. So before we start worrying about the second wave, let's get the heck out of the first wave, which is what we really need to do. Well, we are exactly at time. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would really like to say to my audience? No, I think you've been extremely complete and thorough and efficient. I think we're okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Fauci. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure to see you again, Anna, and thank you for allowing me to be on your program. <laughs> Thanks. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. 
Chad's a great editor, but I wish he'd let me use the word retrospectoscope more often.